thank you. We're going to do it very simple and take things in order, starting with Fintan and working our way down this way. Um, great. Okay, well, um, I think probably I'm an interesting place to start because um, unlike all of these well-established writers, I'm A, much more anxious and nervous to be here, um, and B, I, I'm young and I haven't really worked out like how or why I write yet. <laughs> um, I, I think that's okay. Um, I think really what I'm interested in, in and like probably the best answer I have for why I do write poetry is because I'm kind of interested in like um, in, in communicating with other people and I think probably the reason that I wrote poetry is I don't know I think it's probably really heavily informed by my experience um, on MSN <laughs> and I think there's certain things that you could say on MSN and you could kind of construct a little persona for yourself um, which was just one at one remove from you and, um, and I think I don't know decide for yourself whether you think that is um, had a long-term effect on the way I think about writing. Um, but basically when I started writing I was about like 15, 16, kind of heavily influenced by um, Yeats and David Byrne um, and I thought great I'm gonna write poetry. I didn't really know what I was doing um, but I started a blog because you can do that and it's great um, and that's really exciting and I, like I didn't really have any friends who were writing um, so I kind of made this blog and what was important about the blog for me was that it, it like made my own community like for me and I didn't really know who was reading it but I kind of imagined that I was part of this like community online and I was sharing my poetry with people and that was really important for me um, and, it, and it was great because it was um, you know it allowed me to express myself creatively but um, its major limitation was that um, nobody ever said no um, nobody ever said that's not a great poem Finton you shouldn't publish it um, and I learned that lesson pretty quickly I like I kind of developed some early friendships with people who are also interested in writing and We'd work together and we'd critique each other's each other's work, and then um, and then one time, my, my best friend, um, who was also a poet, he, he we both entered into a competition and, and he won and I didn't, and I went, oh, um, I'm not doing something right, and and that was kind of my first step, uh, I think, away from I don't I don't know towards being more like self-aware and critically aware um, as as a writer, and um, and I think it's interesting this stage of like when you first start out as a writer and. I have had a lot of experience and I spend actually a lot of my time reading um, work by people my own age um, and you can really 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 tell um, when someone is like an immature writer whatever that means I think like either there's kind of no sense of like an authorial voice and they're maybe just churning out things that you've heard before like cliches and tropes or there's like only the authorial voice and they have no sense of character or whatever and it's just them being quite like whingy and that kind of like teenage gush of emotion that like is is a lot of what young people think about like I don't know I think that's what their first experience of writing is um, and and it can be you know it can be a, a personal gush, gush of emotion or it can be a political gush of emotion or whatever um, but it doesn't I don't think it has that kind of self-restraint yet a lot of the time um, and I think that's okay and I think that's a really important stage in writing um, and the reason I'm saying this is because once again I'm totally out of my depth <laughs> but I'd quite like to kind of I don't know in some way like talk about what it means to be in, in the audience here because I think I'm really in the audience as well um, anyway 
Um, I came to uni and suddenly I didn't need my blog anymore because I'd actually met a load of people that are interested in, interested in writing as well. So I suddenly actually had like a real community of writers and readers and people to work with. Um, and that made me think about my audience in, in, a, in a completely different way. And again, it was kind of like that process of like being more critical. You'd like submit stuff to publications and they'd say yes or no, and so you'd reflect a bit more. Um, how, how am I doing for time? Am I You've been three, uh, three minutes. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> so, so I guess the other side of it, I, I've started thinking more recently, especially about um, what I want to do as a writer. Um, and and what, I've, what I found recently is I actually haven't written that much over the past year. I've only just started getting into it. And I realised that the reason for that was that I was really busy and I wasn't actually giving myself um, time. I wasn't giving myself even evenings off to just be like with my thoughts and, and with a pen and be writing. Um, and I think I'm really excited about um, what our generation can do in the way that instead of like spending all my time on poetry, I realised that I didn't really have the same like chunks of time to put aside to write something like a big unit of meaning like a poem. But what I did have time to do between things was to like write little tweets and I've been thinking a lot more about <laughs> my Twitter and how I construct my, um, my, my sort of presence online. And, um, and basically, I think the conversation that we'll be, we should be having when we're talking about how and, and why we write is kind of like looking at this relationship between like digital spaces and, and, and spaces that we think of as, as writerly and kind of our conceptions of what the creative process is, which I think for a lot of people is this notion of um, you know, isolation, the creative mind in their garret by themselves with, you know, a long stretch of time and like a, a long unbroken um, concentration. And, and I can't do that. I, I procrastinate a lot. Um, and I want to look at how those two things can like actually be married and how we can reconsider writing in a distractible and uncreative age. Thanks. Thank you. Um, um, we're going to do something. Ignore there's going to be some technical jiggery poker. We'll move the microphone. Um, but if I can hand over to Jane. Yes. Um, I suppose the reason I write is partly autobiographical and partly down to sheer luck. Um, on the autobiographical side, I think it was very much prompted by our moving to Holland when I was eight. And that, of course, meant a very significant change of place. So I moved from a house with a garden which had apple trees that I could climb to a house that had a garden about the size of this table on a new build estate where the trees were about so high. Um, that is not high enough for you to see at the back. And um, even though I was probably about the same height as the trees, it still wasn't good for climbing purposes. Um, I was very homesick. And then, of course, there was also the change of language from English to total immersion in Dutch. Now, neither of those things had the immediate effect of turning me into a poet. Um, moving to a different place, very rather sadly, made me write lots of stories in which I still lived in Exeter. Um, and apparently, although I don't remember this, the change of language had the effect of making me stop speaking completely for six months. And then when I started again, I spoke Dutch as well as English, which I don't remember at all, but my mum swears this is true. So those, I think, were the, the 
seeds of becoming a poet. Um, but one odd side effect of moving to Holland was that I didn't actually encounter any poetry at all until I was 16, because in the Dutch education system, at least as it was in the 1980s, um, there was no literature. And so I was taught the French Revolution and Dutch grammar every single year for eight years. <laughs> and as far as I remember, not an awful lot else. <laughs> um, certainly no poems. So um, when I got to boarding school in England um, in the sixth form, I spent a lot of time puzzling over poetry books in the library and thinking, I don't understand what this is. It's not a story. I don't understand how to read it. It's doing something that I've never encountered before. And it was great good luck that um, Louis McNeese was on the A-level syllabus. And I opened up a, a small selected poems and found the poem Selva Oscura. Um, which begins, a house may be haunted by those who were never there, if there is where they were missed. Returning to such, is it worse if you miss the same or another or none? The haunting, anyway, is too much. You have to leave the house to clear the air. And at that point, I thought I began to see why you might write a poem and not a story. The sense of being able to cut straight into something, not to have to set anything up, not to have to explain that the situation is there and the language is to the fore. It's not a vehicle, it's part of the poem. So that was great good luck. I think meeting McNeese um, on the page at such an early age. And the other bit of great good luck was that two of the teachers at the school were Peter Scuppam and George Surtees. And they were very generous with their time. But even more than that, I think because they were people who simply went off to write and said, I'm going to write now, I'm not available, that made me think, ah, this is something that it's possible to do. It's not a strange thing to do, it's, it's fine. And I think that luck continued when I came to Oxford because I was at Magdalen. So John Fuller and Bernard Donoghue were my tutors. And again, very generous with their time. But again, more than that, they just got on with their own writing. And that seemed hugely important. The next bit of enormous luck was that in my first year, the Newdigate prize title was The House. And so obviously, um, because of losing my house when I was eight. It gave me an instant way in um, and enabled me to write this poem, which won the Newdigate and which got published as a pamphlet by the Mandeville Press. And so I thought, great, I'm 18 and I'm a poet. And then it all went horribly wrong um, because I wrote drivel for about 10 years. <laughs> and Finton, to my horror, said that the other day he found some of it published in ISIS, <laughs> which is really very embarrassing indeed. Um, and April said one of the things we might want to think about was what the impediments were to getting published. Well, one of them, which obviously wasn't quite impediment enough, was that I was writing very badly. And the other was that I didn't send anything out at all, ever, under mm. any circumstances. Um, and after about 10 years, I suppose the poems had got a bit better. And a friend's father said, I'm going to give you a book of stamps, and you must use these stamps to send out your poems. So I did. Um, and that gradually, eventually, led to Blood Axe taking um, my first book of poems um, 
in 2000, which was a grip on thin air. And they've been lovely and fantastically loyal, which is how it comes that I'll have my fifth book with them next year. So that sounds, in a way, like a story with a, a happy ending. Um, but I think, in a way, what's disconcerting is how little the poetry has changed from where it started. I do hope it's better than it used to be, but it's still very much focused around houses and language. So I will always want to write about place, and often, as much as there being a subject I want to write about, it's a word, a phrase, some sort of collocation, a cliché that can be twisted, um, that, that makes me want to start writing. And that's been almost horribly consistent, I think, right across the however many years it is, which I don't also really want to think about. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. I don't think we have to do any more jiggery pokery with microphones. I think everyone is in place. Um, I'll pass over to Mary. Hi, thank you. Um, it's really wonderful hearing other people's stories. It's fascinating and it makes me think how different every single writer is and how everybody's impetus and um, starting point is different. And I would say that um, for me, uh, why I began to write and why I write now, have they haven't changed, but they've developed. So the reason I began to write is because I had a question. I had a question I wanted to answer that I couldn't answer by myself, that I had to um, ask other people to help me with. And um, I w every single book I've written has begun with a question. I've written four books of non-fiction. I'm just about to deliver at the end of July my first novel, so while it's my fifth book it's a different form. And um, the very first book I wrote was, uh, if you imagine it as a series of paintings, a series of portraits of 12 people, very intense, I mean intensely detailed, um, the sort that you might go and see in, a, in the National Portrait Gallery um, John Player or BP Portrait Award, where you can see every pore and every eyelash. Um, uh, I'm not bigging them up, it's just that they're that, they're that sort of forensic. And they were, um, I interviewed 12 nuns because I couldn't understand how or why uh, anybody would, in the late 20th century as it was then, want to do this. I had no agenda, I wasn't cynical, uh, I really genuinely wanted to know. The background for that was fairly simple, that coming from a, a liberal, over-educated, over-full-of-itself intellectually family, I'd discount myself. Um, uh, I'd, uh, they were of a different breed. They're all very scholastic and academic. I'm not. The biggest rebellion I could come up with, everyone else between them, I have five siblings above me, they'd all done drugs, they'd all done sex, they'd all done travel, they'd all done any sort of politics you could... Uh, so I, I went out with a vicar. <laughs> which was about the best rebellion anyone could come up with. Uh, of course, it was a really naff idea personally, not because he was a vicar, but because, firstly, well, that was a bit naff because I didn't share his beliefs, so it's quite argumentative. But he just wasn't the right person for me, that's beside the point. Through him, I met this um, very, very wonderful and hip, um, semi-enclosed order Anglican <coughs> nun. I became friends with her. That's where my question first question arose. So that was the first book I wrote. I wrote three more books of non-fiction. Every book was a progression. Uh, I won't give you a history of what I've written and why, but um, 
Why I write, as I said, it's because I have a question. Every book I've written has had a question at its heart. The last book I wrote, which was my fourth, um, was, it, it was, if it were placed in a bookshop, it would probably go under memoir. People say sometimes, retailers, when I go into bookshops, they do signings, where, you know, where would you like your book? And I say, by the front door. <laughs> 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 where else? That's where you want it. But sometimes they're a little hard to place. The last one tended to get put in memoir. I wouldn't call it a memoir, but, um, I had a sister who was schizophrenic who, who vanished for many years of her life from us, from, from society, who then died. We found out she'd died. I did a kind of road trip, if you like, to find out who she'd been, how she'd lived, who she was. Um, I learned about my sister. I got to know my sister, uh, who, whom I'd not seen for 13 years, um, after her death. And the book is partly that, it's partly that journey, but it's partly about one single question, which is, what is a good life well lived? And who decides? And that was the question that nagged me after her death. And it nagged me for all sorts of reasons. That was the question that was my, my focal point. If I were in a car, that's where I'm going. And there are going to be things to right and left, but that's what I'm trying to find. Um, I've moved now to uh, uh, fiction. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm now in fiction forever. I've written, I'm nearly at the end of a book now, which is my first novel. Um, and it's a different animal. It's a different animal because it exercises different parts of the brain, the heart, the mind, the character. Um, some parts that nonfiction doesn't really require at all. Some parts that it requires, but differently. It's like being a dancer, but doing a different form. Um, and it's because the question I want to explore, I always have a question I want to explore and hopefully find some answers to. Uh, for me, I could only do this fictionally. I wasn't interested in asking others. I wasn't interested in gathering from outside. It was something that I wanted to look at within my own core. Um, and in fact, I had a conversation today with a, uh, a fellow writer, a novelist. Um, and she was asking me about this, and she said, would you want to write nonfiction again? I said, I have no idea, but at the moment, I couldn't imagine anything I'd want to do less. Because for me, it would, like being, it, it would be a bit like putting a muffler on. It would be like me being a singer and being asked to sing behind a closed door to people on the other side of it. Uh, I want to sing with no filter anymore. I want to write with no filter, and for me, that's the change in terms of writing to fiction is allowing me to do that. My writing is perhaps always fairly naked. It's perhaps even more so now. Um, it, why I do it now, it's the same thing. I have questions I want very much to explore. However, I have to feel messianic about the value of that journey to others. It's fine to, to, to paint a picture or take a photograph or write a poem or a book. But for me, unless it's of some value, unless it's going to start a conversation of, of value or be an experience that's of value. When I say value, I don't mean moral value. I don't mean intellectual value. Something that is meaningful for people outside, if it beyond you. If it's not going to be that, then it's not worth doing, and I have to believe it's worth doing. And I believe now that there are two reasons why I write. One is to answer a question for myself, to seek an answer. The other is to start a conversation by so doing. It may be a conversation I'm occasionally able to continue to take part in in ways that are fantastic, which are rewarding, like going to festivals and meeting people, or perhaps 
broadcasting and then being able to have feedback, um, especially now with technology changing. But I feel that if, if there's any reason, I have no idea why I'm here. I have no idea why we're all here. So the best you can do is figure out what you're going to do while you are here what you're for, not why you're for, but what you're for. And I think I'm meant to start conversations. And that's the long and the short of it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, I wasn't sure w w where to start what I'm going to say. Um, I thought I'd wait and listen to what other people had said. And then um, just sort of riff on that. I was interested to hear Finton say that he began to write at school about the age I did. I, and it was, it was poetry for me, first of all. Um, I discovered most of the poetry I loved by myself, not on a school syllabus. I remember um, we spent a lot of time traveling when I was a boy. My father and then my stepfather were both in the RAF and we were sent to various parts of the world. This was in the days of the British Empire. I am very old. <laughs> and um, we went to Australia when I was about eight. And I remember taking a book from the bookshelf in the sitting room as we left the flat to go to um, Tilbury to get on a ship to take us to Australia. And the book I took from the bookshelf was, was Longfellow's Poems. I don't know why, but I took that book. It looked a nice little, little leather-bound book. So I took that. And uh, that meant I read, I spent a lot of my time in Australia reading Hiawatha. Uh, I don't know if anybody still reads Hiawatha, but it's got a very distinctive and very um, hypnotic rhythm. It's um, uh, trochaic, if that's the right word, not iambic. It doesn't go dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum like most English verse. It goes dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum-de. And it's, it, it, it was strange and unlike anything I'd heard. I would re read it to myself, getting it in my mouth. That's the place for poetry, by the way, not the eye. The eye doesn't know good for poetry. It's the mouth and the ear. That's the place for poetry. Um, so I began with uh, uh, Hiawatha, and then I went on to other things which I g grabbed it was sort of almost by accident. There was, when I was in the second year at my secondary, second school, secondary school in Wales, um, the new, newly arrived scripture, uh, RE teacher, was doing a, um, we were doing something about the voyage of St. Of Paul in the Acts of the Apostles. So he drew a map of Asia Minor and put a lot of names on it. He said, now you copy that? Now go on, boys. And then the door, there was a knock on the door, and the door opened, and some big boys came in. I mean, really big. These were sort of third years. <laughs> Knuckle-dragging, spots, bristles, glowering. Oh, 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 terrible. Terrifying. And they went to the back of the room, and we didn't know what they were going to do. And they began speaking all together. He was sort of conducting them. A cold coming we had of it. Just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. I'd never heard anything like it. He didn't explain what it was. None of our business. You're supposed to be doing the voyages of St. Paul. Get on with it, boy. Uh, but I sat there hypnotized by this marvelous story. I thought it was a story. And, and, and um, some phrases that I heard made my hair stand on end. At dawn, we came down to a temperate valley wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a watermill beating the darkness. I don't know what it was. I still don't know what it was in those words that made me react in that physical way, but I did. I had that physical reaction to um, Milton, uh, to Paradise Lost, when we came to that, books one and two in the sixth form. Um, 
and I, I, I fell in love with, with Paradise Lost, with the whole tradition of epic verse, with everything that English verse could do. And then once again I was startled um, out of that into another sort of pattern. The, well, once a year the, the uh, mobile library came round. The Welsh, um, the Marianas County Council sent a <coughs> library van round to every school, every secondary school, uh, so they could change some of the books in their library. And we in the sixth form were allowed to go and choose a book for the school library. And by that time I was, I was up to there in poetry, I loved it. And when I saw a book with the title The New American Poetry in 1945 to 1960, I thought, oh, that's the one I want. I didn't know what was going to be in it, I just wanted it. And when I opened it and found uh, Allen Ginsberg's Howl, I thought, is this going to be allowed? Am I going to be put into detention for putting this book in the school library? Wow, it's great! And I read it aloud and I, I declaimed it and it, oh, it was wonderful, I loved it. And I thought that's the sort of thing I wanted to write. Uh, my, uh, the, the greatest thing I had to help me write was not a pen um, and certainly not a computer in those days, it was my guitar because uh, this was the days when everybody wanted to be Bob Dylan. So I used to play Bob Dylan songs and uh, copy the words and write them down and write my own songs which were very bad. Thank goodness nobody recorded any of those. <laughs> but when I came up to Oxford in 1965, um, I brought my guitar with me and spent a lot of time playing the guitar. Um, but by the time I'd finished my final exams in 68, uh, I sort of realised that poetry was, um, I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough and I never would be. And I began to write my first novel on the morning after my final school's exam. And, um, and I've never stopped. Uh, storytelling is what, I'm, what I do. That's what I, that's what I enjoy. I love reading stories, all kinds of stories. Um, and I do read for the story and not, um, not just for the exquisite descriptions or anything else of that sort. I want to know what happened next. And I think a lot of readers want to know what happened next. I want to know what happened next if I'm reading Jane Austen's Persuasion or um, Middlemarch. What happened next? What, is she, she going to marry him? No, surely. <laughs> that's the sort of thing that grips me and that's, why I, that's, why, uh, that's what I enjoy doing when I'm telling a story. I've probably gone on for too long, have I? About ten seconds. <laughs> okay, there we are. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I just want to ask a, a couple of brief questions to start things going and then I will throw things open to everybody. Um, I want to start with, with, with Finton and Jane. Um, and I got the sense from both of you that one of the things you grappled with um, because what I've written down is the, um, the possibilities and problems of the absence of tradition. Um, in Jane's case, by not being faced with poetry until you were 16, and in Finton's case, by this, this sort of periodization of time. Um, and what do you do with time being experienced in a non-traditional way? Um, so I wanted to ask you how you see your relation to what I would loosely term traditional form. Um, is it something you're going towards or something you're coming away from? Or um, I d yeah, I think I'm okay. Um, I think my experience um, and the way I came to poetry is, is quite confusing because um, I kind of approached it in the same way that I would music, and I would never like listen to a whole album. I'd normally just listen to the songs that I like, and so there's very, very few. Sorry, Jane. Um, there's very, very few um, poets or like books of poetry that I've ever read um, cover to cover. 
Um, and who knows what that says about my attention span. But um, in terms of whether or not um, I'm working like, from a tradition, I think it's really interesting. I'm going to just talk about this all the time because it's, it's my comfort zone. But the way that um, people have like reappropriated poetry and taken it and put it on digital spaces. So like someone like Frank O'Hara, his poetry is like it can be broken down into these really like bite-sized um, little nice bits like, oh, isn't it lovely to um, smoke too many cigarettes, drink too much coffee and love you so much. Um, and that's just the end of one of his poems and it kind of decontextualizes it completely. But fragments like that get really popular on Tumblr and Instagram. <laughs> um, and and I, th I think that's that's really interesting um, and like uh, say in terms of like the way you're dealing with the different spaces and like that you're allowed spaces of time and spaces like literal spaces on, on pages on phones on computer screens um, and I still don't really know how or why but um, I want to see what you can do with that the other way Jane <laughs> gosh um that's really interesting. Um, I'm fascinated that you're so engaged with the digital simply because you're also a printer. Um, and I'd love to talk a bit about how those two things actually <laughs> yeah. fit together. So maybe we can come back to that. Yeah. Um, I started that thought because I was thinking, gosh, how strange. I never would have thought of poetry as something that has anything to do with stuff on the internet, except that after it's been written, somebody might put it there. Um, <laughs> and I don't see the internet as a creative thing at all. Um, in terms of thinking about a response to tra tradition and traditional form, um, I think that I'm very aware of traditional form because although I'd not met any poems until I was 16, um, I then read English and I now More am a lecturer in English, so I am <laughs> very conscious of form. I think I tend not so much now to write in traditional forms. I think I did more when I was learning. But um, picking up on what Philip was saying about sound, I'm very, very conscious of the sound of poetry. Um, I rarely use full rhyme, but I use half rhyme, assonance, um, sounds that knit together the verse. And that's tremendously important. There's a, a physicality um, to the sound of the poetry. And I think thinking back to um, the printing versus the internet thing, to my mind, because I did letterpress printing and was kind of apprentice when I was still at school, um, there's a kind of physical bite on the page as mm. well. And that matters, the, the idea that poetry actually has a physical existence in the world, um, on the page, bitten into it, and in the sound um, as it's spoken. Um, the question, a very much simpler question, <coughs> came to mind with Philip and Mary, which was simply that Mary talked a lot about writing as a question, and Philip was very much about writing as because he had something to tell, as opposed to something you had to ask. And do you both see them as the same, different sides of the same coin, or is this a difference, an actual difference in approach? I've written very little non-fiction. In fact, I've, I've. Um, the only non-fiction writing I've been has been, has been occasional journalism or an essay or a lecture or something of that sort. Um, so I don't, I don't know how I said about that. Um, what's my what's my reason for writing apart from paying the bills? 
Because <laughs> I don't know how to do anything else. With the non how about that? With the, non <laughs> with the non-fiction, though, Philip, it's interesting because people assume if you write non-fiction, it's somehow very fact-based. You go out and gather a lot of stuff. And certainly for me, non-fiction is still storytelling. It's gathering yeah. stories. Oh, it is, yeah. Um, and, and well, it is, it is in, the, in, in books like yours. In books like mine, yes, yes. Not, not textbooks and so on. No, not textbooks, <laughs> definitely not textbooks. Although textbooks, ironically, make more, a lot, an awful lot of money. I think one of the best-selling <laughs> best UK authors worldwide is a man you'll never have heard of, and I wish I could remember his name. It's on here. It needs to be here. It'll come. He's the man who invented Baby Bio, and he's written a book about Baby <coughs> Bio and the care of tomatoes. And I think, sorry, Philip, I think he sold more worldwide than Philip, than J.K. Rowling, and than any other British is it, living is it, author. Is it Hesse on? Yes. Hesse on. Am yes. I right about The garden expert, yes. Yes, yeah. yes. There you are. So, but non, the, the, the telling, the asking, I think they are the same sides of the, the, the different sides of the same coin. Because in asking and exploring, don't you find, you, you, you're doing it through telling a story. There is a, there is a sense in which it is a sort of answer because I think every um, story I've ever written, everything I've ever written really, has been, a, has been a, a, an attempt to, to answer or, or meet a technical problem which I've set myself. A technical problem? Yeah. For example, um, in, uh, in The Ruby and the Smoke, which is the first book in a series of uh, sort of Victorian thrillers, I suppose you could say. Um, the technical problem was I, I wanted to write a story that was realistic as far as I could make it about the world of 1872 and also melodramatic in the sense that the centre of the story was a jewel, a fab fabulous jewel with a curse on it. So I wanted to do these two things. And the second book in the series, what was the challenge there? Oh yes, the inventor with the, with the terrible machine that would destroy the world. And again I wanted to be utterly realistic about it. In the third book, The Tiger in the Well, it was the situation of being in a cellar with the water rising. All these stock melodramatic, penny dreadful ideas, but I wanted to give them enough background to make them feel realistic. And in the fourth in the series, um, which is the last one that's appeared so far, um, The Tin Princess, this, the, 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 the cliche, if you like, was the, um, the <coughs> little girl from the slums who becomes a princess. Uh, and again, I tried to make it as realistic as I could. So, so th those, that, in, that, in a sense, is what I was doing. What I still am doing with every story I tell. What's, what, can, what can I do here? What's interesting? How can I tell this in a, in a way that will be both satisfying to me, the writer, and to the reader, and who knows, to the characters in the story as well? Thank you. Okay, th if we could have questions. I'm sure there are many questions in the audience. I will take, we have one there and then one there in that order, if you'd like to. My question is for Philip Pullman. I was wondering, uh, given the fact that you have created such compelling parallel universes, like um, in Ruby and the Smoke and his dark materials, where you blend reality and fantasy, what is your thought process in deciding which elements of history or everyday affairs uh, in modern times to keep, and which parts to replace with your own imagination? That's an interesting question. Um, which, which bits of reality do I put into my fantasies? That's what it amounts to. And how do you choose them? What and how do I choose them? Yeah. Well, I don't really choose them. I just I use the bits that work. If they work, I'll, I'll steal them and put them in. If they don't work, I ignore them and hope people won't think about them. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's, there's much less conscious planning than you think going on. Much less conscious deciding. Things are decided for you. 
They're decided for you by the characters who have their own ways of doing things and desires to do this rather than that and say this rather than that. They're decided for you by your own temperament. Um, I've discovered partway through my career that writing realism was not really for me. Um, I'm much more at home in a world where um, <coughs> little people that high ride on dragonflies with poison spurs in their heels. That's, I'm, I'm at home there. But that's a temperamental matter and you have to sort of discover that. I didn't discover it till quite late, actually. Um, so a lot of things I think are decided for you, rather than you consciously picking something off a shelf and leaving other things behind. Thank you. Um, but I'm sure, isn't that true of poetry as well? Yes, I think so. Yeah, um, absolutely. I've always thought of... I mean, do, do, you, do you know now what sort of poem you are? What sort of poet no, you are? No, <laughs> <laughs> No, absolutely not. And this is why I, I get really excited about something like Twitter, because people like to talk about Twitter as like teaching you to be concise in your language, but I think what it teaches you actually is to like slot into genres and forms. And if you think of it like printing, you kind of like have a little formula, have a little sentence that people have used before, and you can take bits out and, and put things back in and make it funny and interesting, creative. I, I even have an example, which I found on Twitter earlier. It says, um, sext, colon, I like your feminist art punk references. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and I think what's great about Twitter is that it's, like, it's quite an intuitive language. And you don't, you don't make those decisions necessarily like consciously. You're not selecting off a shelf like this. But it's um, something people are um, breathing. Mm. Thank you. Okay. We have a question there and then a question there. Um. Barriers. You must have all like hit barriers in your career, in your writing. What were they? How early did they hit? How did you overcome? Really I, I think it, it's like life. Life is um, has peaks and troughs. Um, careers do. Uh, writing processes do. Each book. Um, uh, I was saying to someone the other day. This is perhaps a, an easy way of answering your question. Um, the first book I ever wrote, I wrote uh, as soon as I left university by myself. No one, I wasn't responsible for anyone. I had just about enough money to write it. Um, uh, and then it was published, etc. Uh, my time was my own. I'd get up in the morning, I'd go for a swim, I'd write, then I'd go out to a party, and then I'd go to bed quite early, because that's how I am. And I'd get up and I'd swim, and I'd write, fine. My fourth book, I wrote, uh, I had two very young, I've now got three daughters, but I had two very young daughters, a husband, a ha et cetera. So life starts to impinge in different ways. And in the last, the writing of this last book, life has impinged in its own different ways. So that can produce obstacles, but also, also different books produce different obstacles. Very quickly, my last book, the, the greatest obstacle was that I had, uh, I was writing this story of my sister and I was writing it a little bit, not so much consciously, and then I w became conscious. I was really writing it like a thriller. I was starting with bang, an event, and then moving backwards sort of <coughs> forwards a bit like Pulp Fiction, but really not quite as interestingly as that. Uh, because, in fact... Oh, because Milton does that in Paradise Yeah, uh, well, absolutely does. But Milton, yeah, no, he does, it's true. But th this, the problem I had with this is that it's, uh, I could write it as a, a thriller and I could choose what I wanted to do but nonetheless I couldn't invent things that were not real and mm. as a story it was like in a sense like damn I need a car chase I haven't got a car chase and in fact at the point I needed to do something I went right back in time and I used 
I in fact used a diary that my father wrote when he went to India to try and find my sister who had disappeared in India, the proverbial, proverbial needle in a haystack, ill, drugged out of her mind, vanished. She'd been gone six months. He did find her and then she vanished again. So that diary suddenly brought Catherine, it, she was alive, but it was the past, it was 1973. Without that diary, structurally, I would have had a huge problem with that book. Mm. And although it's the only bit where I'm using something that is written by someone other than me, it, 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 it's part of the fact, I couldn't have, the book wouldn't have worked without it. But, um, yeah. For everybody on the panel, um, I was wondering, at what point did you consciously adopt the identity of a writer? Uh, was there any ever, uh, was there ever a point of doubt, um, or you know, some sort of conflict within yourself? Okay, well, well, who wants to start with that symptom? Very uh, quickly. When we're doing, did you become a writer? I don't think of myself as a writer. I think of myself as someone who writes, um, <laughs> and, um, and I like to. Um, to hmm. I really don't have an interesting answer. I'm really sorry. I wish I could answer your question in a, in a more interesting way. But I, um, I think that what I've found easier is um, finding alternative ways to construct myself in like public and private ways. And I think kind of that's what's interesting about being a writer and like to what extent is like a, a private thing that you do by yourself and to what extent is it um, putting yourself out there and on display. Um, so I think publicly, um, I would say, I would have to say right now, no, I don't think myself as a writer, but privately I think we do. And Mary, then Jane. Uh, no, I don't think of myself as a writer either, I, because I think doing is more interesting than being. Um, I can't remember who it was, some young person said that to, to T.S. Eliot, or was it W.H. Jordan, anyway, somebody with two initials, <laughs> um, that he wanted to be a poet. And the person with two initials said to him, well, this is odd, I don't understand anybody wanting to be, I can understand somebody wanting to write poetry, but not to be a poet. Uh, and I'm completely with that. Uh, writing is something I do, and while I'm doing it, I'm a writer, and I suppose I, <laughs> it, it, does, it doesn't help. Thinking, thinking in that sort of identity way. Uh, I really don't think it helps. It doesn't help me, anyway. I, I now feel guilty, because I do <laughs> think... Yeah, I actually do think of myself as a writer, and I'm kind of jealous of that sense. I mean, for me, it, it matters a lot. Not in terms of anyone else, as in, hey, I'm a writer. It's not that I think that's cool. But for me, it matters because writing is so much... Um, if, I, if I'm not writing, I don't feel fully uh, expressed, as it were. And uh, the, the moment I felt like I was a writer was when I had something published when I was 21. And, and then I was absolutely adamant, that's it, I'm a writer. Um, and um, I've felt so that way ever since. Th there is a sense, of, yes, in which I'm, I'm with you on that. And that's the professional sense. Yeah. We do this for money. And we, we want to get paid. And we get rather pissed off when people steal our work and publish it, for example, on the internet, for nothing. Um, <laughs> Not that that's happened with me, but if I did, it would, it would be, you know. He too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, writer's income, th those people who do write professionally had a very bad time since 20 years ago, roughly, when the, the net book agreement ended. That was an agreement that, that books had to be sold at the price at which they were published, and, and no, nobody could do any discounting. Well, that was done away with in the interests of neoliberal 
turbo capitalism. And um, ever since then, uh, booksellers, um, not Waterstones, heavens above, <laughs> but I mean, people like um, Tesco, am I safe in saying that? Yes. <laughs> Supermarkets, discounting books all over the place, with the absolutely absurd result that when the book, in the last, I don't know, last 50 years, the one book guaranteed to sell a million or more on its first day of publication, the last Harry Potter book, guaranteed to sell a million at full price in hardback on the first day of publication, Everybody was discounting it so crazily that booksellers had to go to supermarkets to buy it because they could buy it at supermarkets more cheaply than they get it from the wholesalers. <laughs> the amount of money that was just simply lost to the book world by this crazy system of discounting um, hand over fist is, is, uh, is uncountable. And it has resulted in a lot of, a lot of um, very unfortunate poverty, and I mean poverty, people who can barely make a living, um, among people who write books that people enjoy, which is a bad state of affairs. And I'm, I'm, I'm strongly, strongly concerned about that. So in that sense, yes, I'm with you. There is a professionalism and we should be prepared to call ourselves professionals. Literally, we, we have, if we can have very quick answers, we have two questions, one there and one there. Um, okay, so cross-panel question, but, but um, jumping off of your motivations for starting writing, um, you, you, when you started writing poetry, you had this instant community through your blog. Um, and then you kind of, you, you receded from it a bit and you kind of rediscovered a, a level of motivation through, through Twitter, through the internet. I think part of this is it's an instant feedback loop. You instantly get a reaction to your work. I look back at recent times, which I've had a lot of excitement through writing, I've had instant feedback. It was an open mic, it was an end of year reading at my degree, and it was a Facebook post. And all of those things created clamor to some degree. So I was wondering whether the motivation for writing and photography and other types of art might be changing with this generation because people are in need of an instant emotional hit from what they produce I'm, and whether... I'm going to take the other question as well because we've had the answer time and the question on that one. So if I can take both questions, we'll answer them together. Yeah, um, I was just wondering what the experience of rereading was like for you guys once um, things were out in the public and not rereading in the sense of editing, but... It's um, really interesting. People want to choo choose a question, and we'll take. Uh, I, I'm interested in answering that one particularly, Philip. Yeah, you go ahead. You go ahead. Um, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, sometimes you reread and you think, God, did I write that? <laughs> sometimes you read it and you think, and you've totally forgotten it. I sometimes have to look back to find things out. When uh, and uh, whereas when I finished a book, I, I I say it's probably completely not true. If you took out every bit of punctuation, I could repunctuate that book. Um, uh, so you're so close to it when you're doing it. For me, I'm very close to it. When it's gone, it's gone. It doesn't belong to me anymore. Um, I'm very very close to it when I'm doing it. Very close to it when it's coming out. When there's a campaign or when there's a paperback campaign. After that, it's gone. I'm on to the next thing, and I'm pleased about it. But that's it. I've been interested recently in the political difference, with a small p, between writing and reading. Writing, it seems to me, is a totalitarian affair. You are a despot, a tyrant, an autocrat when you write. You have absolute command of life and death over every character, every punctuation mark, every sentence, the lot. You brook no interference. You don't want any advice. You tell me what you want to put. Go away. I'm not interested. I am the boss. That's what it's like when you write, but when you read, when, you, when the book is published and it's out there in the world, the process becomes quite different, it becomes democratic. Everybody is entitled to read my books in any way they want to. 
Um, apparently William Golding, the novelist, was very firm in saying, no, this is, this is what you must understand by such and such. And no, you're quite wrong about that. No, it's not like that at all. It's like this. I don't feel that at all. Uh, writing, read, writing is totalitarian, despotic, tyrannic. Uh, reading is not, democratic. Not quite as despotic as moving on to the next answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I don't really have an answer to the reading one, but I'd love to answer the... If you could, very quickly. The, the other one, I, I think that it's just... Yes, basically, I think a lot of it is about... And that's why I got this writing, because I was interested in talking to people in different ways. Um, but there are different sorts of validation, and I think one of the most important things, especially if you're sharing things on the internet, is just the general encouragement of, like, if you post a poem on Facebook, everyone will like it, not because they just, like, like aesthetically judge this to be worthy of a like. You as a writer are saying, great, that's wicked, that's something about that, and, and that's one thing, but like, what you have to bear in mind is that there are different audiences, and you might send that poem off to the forward prize, and they would say, what? And, <laughs> and they wouldn't give it a lot to say, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the encouragement is important. Yeah, I think on rereading, if it's like looking at old photos and thinking, oh, what was my hair like? It may not be the best poem. And if it's possible to read it in one's own speaking voice now, it's probably okay. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.